Welcome to The Cultured Commuter, a cultured approach to the daily commute. I'm John Church. And I'm Catherine Moran. John and I were heartbroken to learn today of the fire that ravaged our beloved Notre Dame de Paris. We join with the City of Lights in mourning this great loss for humanity and are honored to offer this, our small remembrance of a place that will truly never be forgotten. In this episode, we explore the Cathedral of Notre Dame, a Gothic masterpiece at the heart of Paris. This grand cathedral has often been called the People's Book in Stone. It is the embodiment of Gothic ideals of light, faith, and an earthly manifestation of the divine. There he lurks, the hideous hunchback, hiding in the tower, tolling the bell. Where are we? In the Cathedral of Notre Dame de Paris. Yes, we are indeed with Quasimodo, that half-deaf, deformed hero of the novel, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Uh, the book that casts the cathedral as the darkest of Gothic places. So, you know, this, these images of gargoyles hanging from its roofline and evil happenings about, this is what Victor Hugo wrote in that famous novel published in 1831, you know, using the cathedral as a main character. And I quote, His cathedral was enough for him. The other statues, those of monsters and demons, had no hatred for him. He resembled them too closely. The saints were also his friends. They blessed him. The monsters were his friends, and they watched over him. It's interesting that Hugo talks about both monsters and saints because Notre Dame has been witness, certainly, to both for centuries. Yeah, and you know, it hasn't always been this dark Gothic tale. You're right. In fact, the Gothic is all about light. It really is born in a burst of light. And if you think about it, the laying of the first stone in 1163, both the king and the pope were present. And all of the Gothic style really harkens back to the abbot Suget at Saint-Denis. And he is the proponent of a style which really trades the rusticated brick walls of the earlier period for a wall of radiant light. And all of that light is shining down on what you could consider an emergent France. France is becoming a powerful nation. It's going to take a time. War, civil war, all of this. But, you know, when King Louis VII and his bishop Maurice of Soli create that cathedral in the heart of Paris, and they invite Pope Alexander III to come and lay the cornerstone, they feel a light is finally shining on Paris. And Paris is expanding. We are beginning to see Paris emerge as a major kingdom in Europe, as opposed to, you know, when Suget began building in Saint-Denis, Paris was, was all of France. It was just an area slightly larger than Paris. And now we have a real kingdom emerging. Yeah, the area right around that city is known as the Ile de la Cité, you know, the island of the city. And it has an ancient history. The Romans settled the area, but they were on the left bank, actually. And the Roman governors were on the main island. And there have been Roman temples there, a temple to Jupiter. Think about that, right on the island. So always this sacred site. And then later, there was a Romanesque basilica there. But then finally, the Gothic church rises. So already... It had been a, a sacred place, and the, the Prussians kept building and rebuilding. Really as a focal point to their community, this idea of place as being significant and citing the, the Cathedral of Notre Dame there is 
really important. It's the heart of the city and the heart of what was then, and in some ways still is, modern France. And the French kings had not but they were not all powerful, were they? You know, no. they're always uh, rival dukedoms. You know, so Paris is their stronghold. But for centuries, they would have to fight to consolidate their realm and then eventually take over all of France. But again, by building that cathedral, that is uh, a mark in the land, so to speak. And building that would it also the building of it shows the increasing prosperity of Paris as it's growing and growing, as they create that cathedral. And that cathedral would be in the latest style, the Gothic style. We see the architecture of the Gothic church known specifically for a few innovations, ribbed vaulting, flying buttresses, pointed arches, and these great windows of light, which really make the building seem weightless to the eye. For a skeletal structure, really, because the earlier Romanesque cathedral was heavy, solid walls, dark, austere. That had its own kind of severe spirituality. Absolutely. And I think that Abbot Suget's innovation of the pointed arch, which allows for the weight of the building to be much more effectively distributed straight down rather than out horizontally and down, allowed for this transition from the heavy rustication of the walls to these thin walls that are absolutely filled with stained glass windows. I think if the Romanesque churches were solid blocks of saintly stone, Gothic churches are like a piece of lace laid over with stone and glass. They are. And this light, this concept of light, you know, Suget thought he was reading the writings of Saint-Denis, and he was mistaken, but he was actually reading a 6th century philosopher's work about light. And this philosopher wrote that it was actually the, the quality of light was so important to the idea of the divine and of spirituality. And by these simple architectural innovations, the pointed arch, the expansion of the stained glass program, opening up the church so that all we see is an interior space flooded with light, Dany tried to really make manifest a bit of God's divine heavens here on earth. And there's something very earthly that supports that creation of a heavenly realm inside the building, and it's the flying buttress along with the Gothic arch. All the weight of that ceiling doesn't go into the walls of the church. It goes outside into those piers, into the ground. It does, which I've always thought looked like spider legs kind of sticking out of the side of the building and holding the walls up, literally bracing the walls from the exterior so that the visitor inside who would approach a stunning facade Still, when you walk inside, it's that great reveal, that great surprise of walls of light. And the building, in a way, its form is somewhat simple. It's like the shape of a cross. It is. When you walked inside, you walked into the nave, that soaring space going right up to the ceiling, eyes looking upwards. And your eyes are certainly pulled forward again by the stained glass windows. And I think the light outside is over a thousand times brighter than the light inside. So it would have just been dazzling for a contemporary viewer. And there are lower side aisles. You could also make your way though up that nave to the crossing. When you crisscross the, the pointed arches, you're creating these vaults that span huge areas that don't need any support. No, they don't. And in fact, the advent of the ribbed vault, so they put these skinny ribs to articulate the form of these pointed vaults, 
really makes the viewer feel that they're even more precariously supported. You don't see that broad swath of masonry. Rather, you see these skinny, skinny pointed arches that are often finished in a little rosette that appear as though by magic. And the big stone piers have not one column, clustered colonnettes, thin, reeded columns, always on the vertical, always making your eye move, move forward. Then you finally made it to the high altar. And behind that is that semicircular end of the church, again, alight with glass. But let's say you have come from uh, hundreds of miles away. You're a pilgrim, you're, or you're a worshiper, you're someone just from Paris, and you approach this, this building. And these cathedrals, like Notre Dame, are meant to be Bibles in stone and glass. I think that the faithful, you know, we have to remember, for us, it's so difficult to even think about living in a world so devoid of imagery, so devoid of art. You know, it's so simple to hop online and just Google anything and see more images than you can even scan through in a day. But for the medieval pilgrim, um, this was not only a journey of piety, but it was also a journey literally of enlightenment in that you would see, again, manifest this Bible stories, these figures from, from the Bible and from history on the facade and interior of these churches. And they would have been told those stories. They would have heard them read out loud. So they came already knowing many of the stories so they would understand the sculptures and the glass in front of them. And it's often called the, the people's book. If you're first walking up to the church, there are three doorways, each with pointed arches, but also a telescoping effect. Many pointed arches lead you to the, to the front doors. And over the center one, just as a reminder, it's Christ in majesty, Christ during the last judgment with sculptures around him, with the virtuous descending to heaven, but then the sinners descending into hell. And it's really telling that right on the facade of the church, you have the scene of the last judgment, which reminds you kind of why you're there, right? That you've made this pilgrimage in hopes that you won't be one of the damned descending to hell. And perhaps this journey and the penance that you will do inside the cathedral will make up for any sins you've accrued throughout your lifetime. It's a real window onto what's often called the medieval mind. And you can't read everyone's mind. But it's the age of Christendom, the age of faith, the age of one universal, in Western Europe at least, uh, Roman Catholic Church, with one set of stories to tell. And so people are coming to encounter those stories in this church. These aren't just vanilla depictions of hell and heaven. The figures going down to hell, being tortured by demons, are terrifying. They are grotesque. They are the stuff of real nightmares. And for someone, the the possibility of having that kind of torture for the rest of eternity must have been quite manifest and quite real. And beyond those stories, as the eye wanders around that church, the rain spouts have grotesque faces, distorted gargoyles. So there's those monsters that await you in evil realms and demonic realms as well. They have a function, but, you know, it, it, it appealed to people's, people's uh, uh, visual sense and uh, might have scared them a little bit. I think that sense of visuality is certainly heightened with the understanding that originally all of these images would have been gilded and painted. Yeah, this burst of color burst on the landscape. Color. And, you know, the door on the left, entrance door, is dedicated to the Virgin Mary, the mother of Jesus. And, you know, Notre Dame 
is Our Lady, and it refers specifically to the Virgin Mary and to her role in this Christian mythology and iconography in that she is the human vessel for the earthly manifestation of the divine. So she very much becomes this important symbol, this intercessor between the everyday person, the pilgrim, and the the divine God himself. She's so important that the door on the right-hand side of the entrance is dedicated to her, her mother, St. Anne. So you have this motherly comfort being presented at either side of the door, the main door, with the image of Jesus himself. Right, and there's always this sense, I think, of community in Christianity, of welcoming, of worshiping as a flock, a flock, right? And early, earlier depictions of Christ as the good shepherd, carrying the sheep, reminding you that if you stray, he'll forgive you and he loves you and that you can come back into the fold. And these images of family, the earthly family of Jesus, reinforce that notion for, again, the visiting pilgrim. And Mary is depicted as the loving, comforting mother. Absolutely. You know, as well as the queen of heaven, that's a more regal role. It's the loving, tender, comforting uh, mother. Now, once you're beyond those doors, you've encountered Jesus, Mary, the saints. Above that front door are all the kings of the Old Testament in right. the Bible. The prophets who, who saw, who were the seers and prophesied the coming of Christ. And they're enthroned right under these scenes where their prophecies have become a reality. So there's your stories and figures from the Old and New Testament in stone. Then you enter, and as we've already mentioned, this world of glass set in stone. And there are rose windows, a grand rose window above the main entrance, and then two more rose windows waiting for the pilgrim, the visitor, the worshiper at the left and right sides of the church. And again, they tell the stories of the Bible from Genesis, the creation story, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. So that's all being told in glass. Now, over time, some of that glass suffered. The French kings removed the glass at time, put clear glass in. It was restored again. Uh, But the effect is still there of this almost filigreed space, this mystical, jewel-like filigreed space created through glass. Not only were there scenes of the divine, but there were scenes of the faithful. And there are windows that were given from different guilds in medieval France. So one was from the stonecutters or the masons. And this group of tradesmen would come together and each chip in a portion to come up with the funds to donate a window for Our Lady of Notre Dame. And, you know, they were giving for posterity because it took over 100 years to complete the church. Yeah. So imagine those early craftsmen, guild people, were giving... It, was, it would not be finished in their lifetime. So the giving would continue. And they're really not giving to themselves. They're giving to the divine. They're giving to France. And to see yourself as part, a little teeny part of this great undertaking is amazing. And a city or town was judged by its cathedral or churches. Oh, it they really were the is the heart of the, the city. Heart. And it also underscores the idea. And and in the Renaissance, we see guild patronage on the rise. This is kind of the beginning of that, where we really see the individual able to give, who's not wealthy, who's not a king, but also able to give somewhat anonymously. So there's no vanity, there's no sin 
of pride in the giving. You know, we've mentioned this cult of the Virgin Mary around the Church of Notre Dame de Paris. Many churches in France are called Notre Dame, they which are. can cause confusion. Notre Dame de Chartres, etc. So it shows the widespread cult of the Virgin. And in, in many ways, Notre Dame has always been a center of both sacred and profane love. We've talked about divine love and religious worship, but also very worldly love. So sure. Mary, devoted to the Mother of God, sacred love. Christian worship, pilgrimage. Highest form of love on earth. Indeed, and people would go to pray to the Virgin there. But there was also some (laughs) profane love going on at Notre Dame. Think of it. Paris is becoming richer and richer every decade. You know, the center of France. So with that, you have um, the, the building of great buildings. There was also a school associated with Notre Dame. So it's a center of learning. It's part of a whole complex of buildings on the Ile de la Cité. That's right. And we really do feel that at this time in France... There's a little bit of a medieval renaissance happening. There's learning. There's schools teaching craftsmanship and music. Beautiful uh, Bible book illumination, one of the highest art forms. And in the school of Notre Dame, in this burgeoning, rich, wealth, you know, wealthy city with this grand cathedral, comes the most brilliant scholar, or one of the most brilliant scholars of the period, Pierre Abelard. Now, at the, he begins to teach at this school in Paris. You know, that school ended up producing seven popes and 29 cardinals. So <laughs> it's a school and it's a future powerhouse. It's it creates the Yale power of its brokers. Day. Exactly. And uh, among the teachers, of course, Pierre Abelard is there. But then he falls in love upon sight of Eloise. A young woman living under her uncle's care in the vicinity of Notre Dame. They begin this ill-fated love affair. Talk about adventures. It reads like a a soap opera. It really is. It's one of the most kind of uh, tawdry stories that you can think of. I mean, there's a moment he, she becomes pregnant. They're separated. He's forced into a monastery. She's in a convent. They reunite. You're always waiting for the next episode. But what comes out of this? Are there letters to one another? Right. He is, of course... He's one of the most erudite men in Europe, and she's highly educated. And so their love letters have been considered literary classics of the Middle Ages. So there's always a story, always a drama around the cathedral. And I must say, you know, Paris will only continue to grow around the church, you know, through the centuries. And Notre Dame was always the beating heart of that city through the Renaissance, through the 16 and 1700s. But then uh, I'd say one of the most dramatic moments of all hit Right, the French Revolution. And it's interesting that when we think about what a symbol like Notre Dame meant to the French people, that it was such an important space, such an important place for all of these hundreds of years. It's no wonder that it became the target of the leaders of the French Revolution. And it was de-Christianized and turned into a temple of reason. That's the most radical moment of the revolution, I think. There's, of course, the execution, well, well, the execution. of the king and queen of France. <laughs> the reign yeah. of terror. The reign of the abolition of the aristocracy of hierarchy. But to take a building like that and to utterly change its reason for being. Well, to you know. really take the heart and soul out of the building, to take people's faith from them. And they replaced the statue of the Virgin Mary with the goddess of liberty. 
Right. But still a female figure. Isn't that interesting? You know, they still Allegory use, of liberty, you know, right. And then the biblical kings on the, on the main front were all beheaded. Well, they thought they, they were, were French kings. That's right. And the church was eventually used as a food warehouse. Its uh, role as the central symbol of Paris continues because in, when Napoleon Bonaparte uh, rises to power right. and declares himself emperor of the French, uh, he restores the building to its cathedral status. It becomes a, a Christian house of worship again. And then the greatest moment of his reign, 1804, what happens? His coronation takes place there. Yet Napoleon really does redefine the empire of France and expand it to its greatest reaches. It's a world, it's a world power. And it, there's no mistake that he chose the site for his coronation very carefully. In fact, the kings of France were not um, did not have their coronations no. in Notre Dame at all. He really wanted to separate himself from what he felt were the discredited Bourbon monarchs who had been uh, you know, executed. He takes his imagery from this, from Julius Caesar, the Roman generals of the past, and he doesn't want to use the same cathedral to be crowned that his predecessors were at Rennes. He is redefining the place for the coronations to happen in a place that is really still the heart of the city, but had just been de-Christianized by the same people who wanted to get rid of that link between God and the ruler. Like France, he's resurrected the cathedral. He's, he's resurrected the cathedral. Yeah. And even though he's kind of an outsider, outside of that system, he has no blood claim to the throne, it's still the power of that imagery. He's taken it and he's made it, made it his own. He's taken historical France. He's taken the historical building. And he's owned it. He also crowns himself king. He well, takes the crown and puts it on his own head, meaning I, I have taken all of French history. It's mine now. High drama. What a, what a dramatic moment. And, you know, that sense of drama around that cathedral will only continue. You know, Napoleon will fall from power in 1815. But then, you know, in the early 1800s, the romantic movement is on the rise in the arts. It is. You know, that movement that really focuses more on emotion and evocative mood. And also, though, you know, Notre Dame de Paris architecturally wasn't as appreciated because for centuries before that, classicism, the classical style based on ancient Greece and Rome True. was the order of the day. And Gothic, you know, the Gothic style was named for the Visigoths who sacked Rome and for years was considered a derogatory term. And I think also Notre Dame de Paris was just the highest kind of moment in the Gothic style, but it was so far away from everything prized by the Renaissance and those who came after it in the neoclassicism. And much of medieval Paris was in decay, but then it began to appeal to the romantic sensibility, these picturesque the tangled streets. The noble ruins. The noble ruins. And there's the church. So all of a sudden, though, it's a book that's pivotal in reassessing it. Victor Hugo writes The Hunchback of Notre Dame. That's how it's referred to in English. He just called it Notre Dame de Paris in 1831. It's the story of Quasimodo, again, that we referenced it earlier, the hunchback, the deformed, uh, half-deaf hero of the novel, actually, who hides in the church and rings the bell. But then the evil, the evil deacon of the church falls in love with the beautiful Esmeralda. The deformed Quasimodo ends up being her protector. And Victor Hugo is really casting the cathedral as a character, the character of old Paris, the For witness. Sure. The cathedral is the one witnessing all of this, good but, and bad. And it's that 
novelization that Hugo, that he orchestrates really this sense of place that captivates a contemporary audience and people far and wide, especially the Americans who are beginning to do their grand tour, want to go and fall in love in the place the Hunchback of Notre Dame fell in love. Yes, their hero. And it, it leads, so the book is published in 1831. By the early 1840s, King Louis-Philippe declares that it will be restored. And in 1845, Emmanuel Viollet-le-Duc, the architect, begins the restoration. Now, as a romantic architect, he sometimes overdid some of the restoration, but he replaced the statues of the missing king. He did. He brings the spire back over the center of the church, and he will set the template for restoring medieval ruins across France. And his work is known widely. His books are read widely. And the young American architect, Richard Morris Hunt, is studying at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts in Paris, where this is the, the School of Fine Arts, where uh, Le Duc is a teacher and, and part-time instructor. And one of the most significant figures in architecture at this time. And I think the fact that Le Duc is putting his attention to Gothic buildings is also really significant. In a time where we're about to walk into the Beaux-Arts era, To have this great mind looking at Gothic architecture and deeming it worthy of restoration and attention is super significant. Yeah, the classicism taught at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts is always about Greece and Rome, but the restoration of that church in the heart of Paris is very important. And, you know, the church continues to be a witness to historical events because in the 1850s, shortly after its restoration, uh, the Emperor Napoleon III decrees that Paris will become a modern city. And under his prefect of the Seine, Baron Ausmann, they begin to demolish old Paris to put through the grand boulevards we know today. All roads lead to the Arc de Triomphe. Yes, the great classical arch, right? Of course. But there's the old Ile de la Cité, the heart of the medieval city, and Notre Dame sat surrounded by medieval houses. Well, they go. They're no longer there. There's a great deal of demolition that does go on in front of Notre Dame. The, the cathedral itself is safe. Of course. But much of its medieval context is gone. I think Ausmann's redesign of Paris is brilliant in so many ways. The modernization of a city, uh, the sewers, the lights, all the functional aspects, and right. the beauty of the boulevards. But that was a tragedy to lose some of the character around that cathedral. And you know, the artistic community did revolt against this. Charles Baudelaire mourned for what he called the loss of old Paris, immortalized in books like, you know, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And I think forever lost is that medieval approach to the building as well. Coming through the not straight, not wide, not modern, not lit streets, and the cathedral itself emerging in the Parisian dusk, perhaps. That sense of romanticism that Hugo so embodied in his novel is somewhat washed away by Ausman. But it's funny, and it still retains its power, doesn't it? Because as we go through the modern age, World War II arrives, 
Paris is occupied by the Germans. We have this great moment with de Gaulle. When Paris is liberated, and then August 26, 1944, Charles de Gaulle, the leader of the French resistance, also accompanied by General Philippe Leclerc, walks through the streets of Paris just after it's liberated with sniper fire still in the air. And where is he marching to? Notre Dame, of course. to Notre Dame for a mass to celebrate the liberation of the city. If you want to speak of an enduring symbol of France and of Paris, and especially, I think, of survival. Endurance, really, is the image that you get. De Gaulle so proudly walking through these streets, defying the sniper's bullets. You know, even poor Quasimodo, the anti-hero of the Hunchback of Notre Dame, you know, is a witness to things, witness to good and bad. And so this is the great liberating moment in 1944. And when you speak of endurance, in the early 2000s, the facade of Notre Dame was clean. It was 800th anniversary, wasn't it? 800th anniversary. And bringing it back to its whitish limestone exterior. So no longer was the Dark Ages dark anymore. The <laughs> modern notion of Gothic being dark, that, that's a romantic idea, born of Hugo's novel, that it's a dark, eerie world. And that's very much how the Americans abroad would have experienced the Gothic cathedral. And finally, it's returned to be, as it's always been called, a garment of white filled with light. And I think that's the enduring legacy of Notre Dame. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to our podcast, where we will continue to connect the big ideas and small details that shape world culture. The music in this podcast is an excerpt from Le Toile Danse and is provided courtesy of Medon.